And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now, this week's episode is a true summertime jam, if it was a song, which it isn't. It's an interview with Dr. Sarah Lewis, who is the Firefly expert, and she wrote a book called Silent Sparks. And I got to tell you, my interest was sparked, not to completely use a corny pun there, but my interest was sparked when I was just a wee little tyke way back in, you know, some unnamed year when living in Chicago... We call them lightning bugs. Uh, here they're called fireflies. Around the world, some glowworms. They have different names around the world. We call them lightning bugs. And right around sunset, as the sun was fading over the horizon, which, as we all know, is the definition of a sunset, these insects would take flight. And the, this, this strange light, these little dots, pinpoints of light, would just show up in intervals in the air. And as you got close, it was still a little bit light out. You could actually see the bug flying around. And, you know, you'd see this, what I now know is bioluminescence, but basically this bright blue glow, you know, the steady glow is like glow, glow, like that, where some blink, but these glowed. And I remember really being taken aback by this as a kid and wandering around and kind of catching them. You let them sit on your finger and, you know, they glow in your hand and they're very you know, very docile creatures. And then you catch them. Everyone caught a couple, and you'd put them in a jar and poke holes in the top and, and keep them overnight. And all of those, they never made it through the evening. And I still carry a lot of guilt about that. I'm not going to lie to you. But but nonetheless, I remember these moments, this little bit of nostalgia. And, uh, you know, I think it was at that moment, I think I can pinpoint my love of bioluminescence to, to those moments as a child and what makes bioluminescence so amazing to me is that it's it's this biological creation of light. And I, I just find it fascinating. And in all creatures, not just lightning bugs or fireflies, but in, in all creatures. But I think that was the first real tangible, um, you know, uh, where, where I could a tactile experience with a creature that could generate its own light. It's pretty inc- crazy stuff. It stuck with me to this day. And, and these creatures turned out to be pretty amazing. This is a very exciting topic. I, I know very few people are going to share your enthusiasm like I will, um, but I love fireflies. I'm just going to say No, that. actually, everybody shares your enthusiasm really? and mine for fireflies. Yeah. So, um, you know, I have met a lot of people who don't like insects at all. They're totally freaked out by insects. But I have never met a single person who didn't love fireflies. Hmm. Not a single person. You've never met anybody who didn't like fireflies? I've never met a single person who, I mean, really, and, you know, I don't know, I've met thousands and thousands of people. I've never met, and I've talked to a lot of people about fireflies. I've never met anyone who doesn't say, oh, I love fireflies. And, um, you know, if you go on um, Twitter and you search firefly hashtag for, well, fireflies, 
not Firefly because then you get a TV show, right, but um, right. <laughs> Fireflies. And you, um, you know, any time from like June, July, you get hundreds of people who are out there at night just like amazed and blown away by their local fireflies. You know, they just went for a run or they were just driving down the street or they, you know, walked out in their backyard, um, took the dog for a walk or something, and they come back in and they tweet about fireflies. They are definitely the most charismatic insect. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think why I love them, and I think maybe this goes to why other people love them, is that I am amazed every time I see an animal with bioluminescence. You know, just the, the organic ability to create and generate light is just mind-blowing to me. Absolutely. So why is that? Do you have any idea why? I mean, that's what's so... Why I like it or how it works? No, it's part of their mystery and it's part of their appeal. All bioluminescent creatures know. And so I've actually, you know, in my spare time, sometimes I uh, ponder, why is it that people are so fascinated by bioluminescence? What is it about that glow that attracts us so much? And actually, I'm really interested in your opinion. Oh, you're... Why I like it? Yeah, why you think people wow. in general. Oh, people in general. I think it's yeah. because it is so foreign to us, and we, we're we yeah. very technology-based. So when it comes to electricity, uh, you know, we have a light that we flip on, and it's all mechanical or chemical or electronic. You know, like it's all man-made. It's, it's artificial. And when you uh-huh. look at, like, these types of things that are generated in nature, so when you see – um, you know, just the way evolution works and it creates these things as insects require them in their environment. And bioluminescence is just one of these things where it's like, how can something we're so used to being mechanical and man-made, how can this be generated biologically, chemically, um, on command with a sense of control that, you know, that is just, I mean, it's like as if, I mean, if, if you could somehow splice that into us and the way I move my arm up and down is the same way that fireflies can turn on and off a light on their butt. Yeah. Like that's to me why it's amazing. Yeah. It's not actually on their butt. It's on their abdomen, but Hey, that's, that's a the technical. Butt. That's technical. But, yeah. We're called the butt for the people at home. Yeah. <laughs> I always, yeah. I always think of the butt like the back, not sure, the front side, sure. whatever. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, t- I, I was talking to a philosopher once, actually it was just a couple months ago about this and they said, well, you know, they think they were agreeing with basically what you said, which was that the reason that bioluminescence is so fascinating to humans is because we can't do it. So if you could open your hand, right, like make a soft fist and then open your hand. And if you can imagine light coming from the center of your palm, fireflies would be no big deal for us. It would be, you know, oh, yeah, I could do that. And so I think you're right. It's something that um, I actually think it goes farther back in in human history than, you know, electricity or even fire. I think probably, you know, fireflies have been around for a really long time and way before humans. And so I think that um, that probably, you know, the very first humans were as enthralled by fireflies as we are, even though they hadn't invented electricity yet. Hmm. I mean, it's an interesting thought, but I mean, you know, just to counter your argument that there are lots of things in the animal kingdom that exist that we can't do that we're not as amazed by. Um, <laughs> True. You know, I mean, like yeah, I can't like, for example, you know, rattlesnakes and 
um, and uh, spiders and larva fireflies, quick little foreshadowing there, uh, can produce toxins, neurotoxins that can paralyze enemies and, and things like that. Like we don't have that ability. And you don't want that? It's not that I don't want it, but I don't think people are like on their hike, like, oh, look at that adorable little rattlesnake who can inject venom into mice. You know, we don't we don't have yeah, that kind I, of you know awe mm-hmm. for them. Yeah. So adding to the appeal of fireflies, um, the popular appeal of fireflies, I think, is also the fact that they are harmless. And um, <laughs> that's a fair point. That helps a lot. That's, that's a fair that's point. A good thing. Yeah, there's there's no threat from fireflies, and also they're really like visually appealing. They're really beautiful. They're mm-hmm. ethereal. They're mysterious. No, they're out at night. They're out in a crowd. You know, they're silent sparks. They're floating through the air. They're um, there's something that is that that goes beyond um, just mere bioluminescence for fireflies. Well, and it's visual too. I mean, like venom's not yeah. really visual, unless you count the death throes of the animals they're injecting. It's not a very yeah, visual cool. thing. Yeah. yeah, most people cringe at that. So obviously, you have a passion for this uh, that that comes through in everything that you say. How did you get into fireflies? Besides all the reasons that you've mentioned, which are clear and obvious. Yeah. So actually, I didn't get into fireflies for any of those reasons. I got into <laughs> fireflies. Um, it's not what you think. All right. Actually, you know, I never. I had no childhood uh, fascination with fireflies. Lots of people do. Lots of people remember hmm. like these uh, incredibly nostalgic uh, visions of their childhood, where they went out in the evening with a mason jar and they, you know, ran around with their friends and their family and they caught fireflies and they put them in a jar and they put them on their nightstand and they fell asleep with them and in the morning they were all dead. I have none <laughs> yes. of those. None of those memories. I don't even remember. I grew up in Connecticut, so there were fireflies. I just don't remember any of them. I didn't actually really notice fireflies until I was in graduate school. I Wait, was... hold on, hold on, hold on. You went your entire childhood in Connecticut where fireflies were, and you don't have a single memory of fireflies Correct. as a youth? Yeah, not only that, but I spent a lot of time outside. I mean, I was outside all the time. I was like, we were wild children. We were, you know, the original. We were outside in the woods all the time, day and night, uh, unsupervised. So I, yes. Doesn't that scare you? Doesn't that? I mean, don't you feel like you've repressed several? There's no way you went through your entire, you know, your entire life without seeing a firefly. I admit it. I, I told you it was a really unusual, you know, coming to fireflies story. And so I have no childhood recollections of fireflies. Huh. I was probably, um, I was in graduate school, so I was like in my 20s. And I was sitting out in my backyard in North Carolina. I was actually on, um, with my dog. And there was a uh, late afternoon thunderstorm. It got really, really, really dark. And suddenly, like this whole field of fireflies. There was this meadow in our backyard. The whole field just came alive with fireflies. And uh, it was amazing to me. I'd never seen anything like it. And I couldn't believe that there was all of this activity, this energy, this frenetic activity that was going on there. And I didn't know anything about it. So the next day I went to the library uh, this is at Duke University in, in uh, Durham. And I uh, started looking up everything I could find on fireflies. And I realized that all of the, the silent sparks that I had seen flying around in my backyard, they were all males because it's the males that fly, flash, and signal. 
And so the next night I went out and I started looking for females. So females in general are down on the ground. They respond to the advertisement calls, let's say, of the males with a single response flash of their own. So they're pretty easy to spot once you get an eye for them. So I wandered around with my dog and we're looking for female fireflies. And I was also, you know, catching males at the same time and um, putting them in a in a big jar. And at the end of that night, it must have been, I don't know, you know, like 10, 30, 11 at night, I sit down and I start counting the females that we have. We have two females. Mm-hmm. And I start counting the males. We've got a couple hundred males. <laughs> and night after night, same thing. It's a crazy, crazy competitive world for male fireflies who are trying to mate, trying to find females. There's lots, lots, lots more males than there are females. And that just really caught my attention. So, um, you know, they, to me, the attractive thing about fireflies is that they so beautifully illustrate this process. uh, We call it sexual selection. So, um, like natural selection, struggles for, for survival, sexual selection is the struggle for reproductive opportunities, like how you get to pass your genes on to the next generation. So I'm putting myself in the little tiny minds of these male fireflies. And I'm thinking, whoa, this is crazy competitive. How are they, you know, what are they doing? How are they attracting females? Um, there's so much pressure on them. Who are the ones that get to mate and how do females choose them and so i put that question aside for uh several years while i finished my phd which was actually working on coral reef ecology in belize spending a lot of time underwater where there are no fireflies wow (laughs) but but bioluminescence though lots of really cool bioluminescence oh yeah great bioluminescence but um that wasn't what i was studying and (laughs) so it wasn't until many years later that i had an opportunity to you know say hey well what's the next big scientific question that i want to answer and it um they it had to do with sexual selection and fireflies was a was a big 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 draw so that's how i got interested that's how i got hooked on fireflies well, and what's kind of cool is you, so at Tufts University, you study this, and you all, this is a total side note here, but I found it very interesting, you also study the flower beetle as well, the sexual selection of the flower beetle. Yeah, yeah, beetles. Beetles are great. They are, um, both as a band and as an insect. And with the flower beetle, I uh, I actually stumbled upon them um, very tragically almost in a way. Uh, one day I, found, I saw one like flying around my kitchen, mm-hmm. and, and I was like, what is that? I'd never seen like this type of bug before. And then, like, the next day there were two, and then I opened a cabinet, and there were, like, three, and I was like, where are these things coming from? And, like, two weeks went by, and I was like, these have to be coming from someplace, and lo and behold, I must have bought something with one in there, and they had infested every open container that I had with flour or cornmeal or anything. Um, It was remarkably impressive. I I mean, it looked like an anthill because a lot of these things were in clear containers. But, I mean, I had to get rid of everything in my cabinets. I mean, they were uh, harmless. You can, you you know, um, yeah. So flower beetles are really famous for being a pest. And the reason they're a pest is because they have incredibly high reproductive rates. So, yeah, they can explode really fast in your pantry. And um, 
just, you know, for you and your listeners, anybody might be interested, a good way of getting rid of any kind of stored products pest is just to take that container and put it in the freezer. Hmm. Right. That kills uh, the eggs. It kills the larvae. Put it in the freezer for a day. And then, you know, depending on how you feel about insect protein, right. uh, uh, you could actually use it. Um, to make a cake or something like that. Or you could just throw it out. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that very few people are going to be comfortable just freezing it and then eating it, is my guess. Yeah, and I'm going to actually point out the fact that um, it looks to me like uh, there's a lot of advocates for eating insects. We're way off the topic of fireflies now, but um, this business of entomophagy is a, it's a really growing trend. And there's now there's mealworm flour and it's much, much less harmful to the planet, you know, cultivating insects. It's a really, really good source of protein, much better than um, animal husbandry for the planet. So I don't, you know, it, right now it seems kind of gross, but I think, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, it's going to be a different story. And so sort those tribolium beetles that were in your flower might be like the next best thing. So I could have just stumbled upon like my, the future of food in my pantry. Future of food. Yeah, I'm actually planning to teach a course next year, a seminar course at Tufts on eating insects. <laughs> well, you're not the first just person I've heard I... talking about this. Okay. Well, I'll stop then. No, no, no. I'm just no. I'm just saying, like, it's it's out there. I mean, people are into this. Yeah. It's not like, oh, yeah, one no, person, one crazy a... person said this, and he's wearing a tinfoil no, hat. No, yeah, there's, there's a guy in Belgium. I don't remember his name. He's a, he's a well, you know, he's a quirky scientist, uh, but he he gave a TED Talk about it a, a few years back. It's very, very convincing. Check it out. I will. And watch this Watch this segue, Sarah. The, these, this is how the masters do it. So we're going to talk about eating insects to insects eating um, because fireflies have three very distinct, very different stages. Um, and I got to tell you, most people are enamored with the adult stage, Um I fell in love with the larva stage. These things are monsters. They're animals as larvae. They're voracious eaters. They can, um, going back to the venom thing, they can paralyze with neurotoxin large snails and earthworms, and and they dissolve them and drink them in, in uh, as a soup. Uh, these things are they're nasty and amazing. Absolutely, yeah. So most people don't even realize that there's another side to fireflies. They think you know it's just this beautiful, mysterious, gentle, ethereal world out there, and that um, they never stop to consider that the the luminous landscapes that we admire so much are actually just a tip of the firefly iceberg. There's a whole backstory, a whole life cycle. If you don't appreciate the life cycle, you can't possibly appreciate fully what these adults are doing the adults only live a couple of weeks but the juvenile stages of fireflies last for two years so the firefly that you see and admire you know lighting up is uh just a very very small part of the entire firefly life cycle and you're right the larvae are it's a like a a dr jekyll and mr hyde thing they are exactly the opposite of the adults, which typically most, not all, adult fireflies don't eat. So um, the larvae, on the other hand, spend all their time eating and growing and eating and growing. They're like, you know, these the, like teenagers. They're just con- absolutely focused on, um, 
getting bigger. And as you mentioned, they are voracious predators and they can take down prey many, many, many times bigger than themselves. Like uh, some lightning bug fireflies, which might be, you know, ooh, a couple of millimeters long, they can eat an entire earthworm. How do they do that? That's crazy. So it's crazy. It's crazy. They gang up on the earthworms. And a bunch of them will, uh, I've actually spent a lot of time watching this under the microscope because it's just so fascinating. There really should be a couple of movies out there about it. I haven't seen any, but um, that's our next project. <laughs> These larvae gang up on the earthworm. They, they, they climb up onto it. Do you remember the, science, uh, the novel Dune? Um, I know of it. I didn't actually read it. Frank, so Frank Herbert, and um, there's these these um, they live on the sand planet, and there are these giant worms, and um, their sand riders have to like uh, use a grappling hook to to catch the worm, and then climb up on the back of it, and then they can get transport around the planet. That's what these firefly larvae do. They they just jump onto the back of an earthworm, and they sink their they have these sickle-shaped jaws and they sink their jaws into the earthworm and now there's several of them that are doing this simultaneously and they inject the earthworm with paralyzing neurotoxins we still have no idea of what those are but after a while the earthworm slows down slower slower slow and it stops moving it's like a walking refrigerator because over the next couple of days these firefly larvae, then um, once it's paralyzed, they secrete digestive enzymes into the earthworm, liquefying it, and then they basically slurp it up through the same yeah. hollow sickle-shaped jaws. It's like an earthworm smoothie. They just gorge <laughs> themselves. Yeah, it's gross. It's totally gross. They gorge themselves until they can't even walk. Their legs don't reach the ground. They're like their their whole abdomen is distended, and they just basically lie there for you know probably a day, two days until then they're ready to eat again. Well, I have a dog that does that, so I'm not unfamiliar <laughs> with animals eating so much that they can't move. Um, and, and you foreshadowed something very important here. I think you know earthworm smoothies may be in all of our futures if you'll have your way with with our future diet. Um, so be prepared for earthworm smoothies out there. Uh, mm, yeah. that, that was a really gross visual. Uh, so then, so these things eat and eat and eat, and they're basically preparing for their adult life where they're not going to uh, be doing any of that. And then they they hollow up into a cocoon, into the pupa stage. Now this is kind of you know each each life, like you said, you got to appreciate the life cycle. Now each stage in this is. Amazing if you're into insects, uh, but the pupa stage, the metamorphosis, the metamorphosis process. Is that am I saying that correctly? Uh, the the process of metamorphosizing into something else. Uh, that that to me like blows my mind because we don't do we understand how that works? How these things kind of turns in from from a worm into a fly, you know, a caterpillar into a butterfly. Like this process to me is is really amazing because we can't really see it happening. It's like they pull up a curtain and they're changing clothes into a whole nother animal. I totally agree with you. Metamorphosis is fantastic. It's an incredible thing, an incredible process. And, you know, the fact that they can 
that insects, uh, for example, can completely transform themselves from a uh, you know, growing eating machine into a that's living underground or living on a leaf like a caterpillar into a flying sex machine that doesn't <laughs> eat anymore. It's a crazy, crazy life. I mean, wow. You know, we think, you know, you look at a human baby and you think, oh, yeah, baby, there's such a transformation baby and then a toddler and then a uh, teenager and then an adult. That's nothing compared to what insects do. They completely reinvent their whole body, their whole nervous system, their whole sensory system, mm -hmm. their whole umwelt changes. It's a, it's an incredible transformation. I agree with you. It is absolutely miraculous. And the best thing about it, well, no, that's, that's pretty cool. But yeah, we do understand a lot about metamorphosis. Insect metamorphosis is a process that's been studied since the 1920s, and scientists have learned a lot. We know a lot about the hormonal control, insect hormones that um, come on at different stages that that control the whole cycle. And it's a, it's a really, really intricate, beautiful, really carefully orchestrated process. It's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like in a way, it's it's a it's a, a ramped up version of puberty in a way, because like you know, human beings go through, but we're just getting bigger and like just changing a little bit, like things are just maturing. But with with insects, the, all the hormonal and the changes are shifting the body completely. Uh, I mean, growing wings, like that's amazing. Uh, so so, uh, you good band name here, great hashtag. Uh, flying sex machine. That's what these things become. And they go from being obsessed with eating, with being obsessed with, and I'm going to use a technical term here, getting laid for the next two weeks. That's all they're concentrated on. They're like, they're like human adults, really, if you think about it. Uh, now, how does this process begin? And when does it begin in the, uh, in the year? And, and how long does it go? Okay, so for fireflies, um, the first thing to keep in mind, and this is something that really surprises people, when I tell them that there's actually 2,000 different firefly species around the world. So it's not like there's one firefly everywhere that's lighting up. Um, there's a lot of diversity in the firefly world. And so um, the time of year that fireflies are active depends a lot on where you are. So in the United States, the main firefly season um, in the eastern United States, for example, for the lightning bug fireflies, the ones that light up when they're adults, is from end of May, let's say, uh, maybe early May to um, the end of August. Summertime. Mm. That's when the adults are out. But the larvae are living underground even in the winter. So, you know, I drive by my firefly study site every day. And in the summertime, you know, I drive by and I think, oh, yeah, in just a few hours, I'm going to be out here getting eaten by mosquitoes and um, watching fireflies and, you know, counting their flashes and things like that. But in the wintertime, I drive by and I think, oh, yeah, isn't it cool? There's all those firefly larvae that are down underground. And in the spring, when it starts to warm up, they're going to start to get active and start hunting earthworms and uh, doing their thing, their gluttony thing. And <laughs> when they get big enough, they'll, they'll enter that pupil stage underground again. And then in the uh, early summer, they'll be crawling out from under the ground as a fully formed adult firefly 
into the light, into the air for the first time and, you know, opening up their wings and flying for the first time. So that's what I think about in the winter. No, that's that's amazing. And and what's what's kind of cool about fireflies, which is a point that I, I I didn't know this, is that they're really categorized by their courtship style, by the flashes. You know, they're fireflies. I mean, bioluminescence it takes a lot of energy to to do this, so that's very special. But this is kind of I thought it was the only way they communicated. And I want to talk about that in a second. But they also communicate with pheromones as well, which is kind of interesting. And there's actually a dark firefly which doesn't even light up at all, and they hang out during the day and court during the day. Is that correct? Yeah. So one of the things, you know, we've learned a lot about fireflies in just the past 20 years. Um, uh, There's a small, dedicated group of about 200 people around the world who study fireflies, and we've made a lot of really, really cool discoveries. And one of them is that um, we've come to understand that firefly uh, bioluminescence first evolved not in the adult stage, but in the larval stage. Every single firefly larva for all those 2,000 species can light up, but not all the adults light up. So the very, very first firefly had a larval stage that was bioluminescent, and the adult actually used pheromones or, you know, sort of the chemical perfumes wafting through the air to find their mates. They, the adult, the original firefly, the adults couldn't light up at all. So, you know, um, that's a pretty major rethinking of, you know, what fireflies are all about. That means that biolumin, the ability to make light in fireflies was initially promoted by the need for fireflies to protect themselves. And firefly larvae actually um, contain toxins that make them distasteful to predators, things that might encounter them underground, like um, mice and voles, uh, other uh, other like uh, ground-dwelling beetles. They're very, very distasteful. Um, and so we think that this light first evolved as a warning. It's like uh, for, for these firefly larvae that are living underground, it's like a neon sign in the darkness. It's a, it's a really visible signal. I'm toxic. Mm. Stay away. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's – um, it wasn't until many, many million years later that – the some adult fireflies, like the lightning bug fireflies that we, you know, think of as the um, prototypical firefly, um, turned that sort of slow glow. The larvae mostly they don't flash; they glow. Um, lightning bug fireflies have co-opted that ability to make light, and they've turned it into a signal: quick, bright flashes that they control with their nervous system. Um, that they use as a kind of Morse code to communicate and um, to find and attract mates. And they use it, and in, in what's kind of cool about that is there's so many different types of communication here, you know? Because when you think of Morse code, it's like dots and dashes. But this is actually very, very complex. Uh, there's even one, I think the, it's the Big Dipper Firefly, that makes a J in the air, like it, it flights and then drops down and then comes back up and makes like a pattern in the sky. That's crazy. 
Yeah, the Big Dipper firefly is really great. It's great because it is um, it's the most common firefly in the um, in the United States. It's geographic range. It's it's found all over from. Uh, well, actually, we don't have them in Massachusetts. That's kind of sad. But it's from Long Island all the way south and all the way east uh, to the Mississippi River. They're really, really widespread. They're really common. Um, they're the Big Dipper fireflies. Its scientific name has two parts, um, Photinus pyralis, and they are, um, they're the ones that most people remember because they're out really, they come out very early in the evening, basically just at dusk. So when they're flying, you can still see their bodies. And so you can watch a male fly along, as you say, dip down and then rapidly rise up. So they inscribe these luminous J-shaped patterns and they have a really long flash. It lasts about uh, almost a second. And if you see, uh, you know, and they fly everywhere. They're really everywhere. They're, they're on roadsides, they're on lawns, they're um, ev everywhere in the summertime. In fact, this summer, has been a really, really fantastic summer for um, Big Dipper fireflies in New York City. So uh, there are fireflies in pretty much, uh, well, in Central Park, in Prospect Park, in Brooklyn. There are fireflies all over the city, and people have been um, saying that there's more fireflies in, uh, in Manhattan and in more different places in Manhattan than they've ever seen before. People who've lived in the city for you know decades. Wow. It's been a really, really good season for fireflies. And those are the Big Dipper fireflies. And so what's the other good thing about Big Dipper fireflies? Yes, because they're so common, they're not likely to go extinct anytime really soon. Um, that's a good thing, I think. And... They're easy to catch for kids because they fly low to the ground, slow, just at dusk. You can put them in a jar with a piece of like wet paper towel and they'll be perfectly happy until you let them go in the morning. If people let them go. I got to tell you, this is like one of the most disturbing parts of this because lots of fireflies gave their lives to research um, because you studied a lot of interesting things that kind of require you to take these things apart. Um, one of the most interesting things is what's called a nuptial gift, which you're going to explain in a second because I will not do it justice. But basically, these things are flying around and they're making their signals, basically telling other female fireflies uh, their species that they are. They can, you know, the light flashes to tell their species. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they're and they're obviously they're they're males if they're running around. And you describe it in your book. Uh, that it's kind of like wink, wink, and then they're looking for a response, right? Like they're like, hey, girls, and then like they're looking for someone to be like, hey, guy, to Absolutely. yell back. And so it's, it's this whole courtship process, which is, is kind of interesting. Uh, so how – what is it um, – before we, before we get to the, the, the coital stage, what is it about the male fireflies that makes them attractive? Is it, does it depend on the species of female firefly, what she's looking for? Or are they all kind of looking for the same thing, kind of like hunky guys – you know, square jaw, blue eyes kind of a thing. So that was really one of the big mysteries when I first started working on fireflies. Um, and one of the things that, you know, really sparked my interest in that uh, North Carolina backyard is, you know, what is it that's making these couple of females here, they're not answering most of these 200 fireflies. They're only responding, you know, every once in a while, just to one lucky guy. What is it about that lucky guy's flashes? She's not like, you know, she can't feel 
him. She's not anywhere near him. She can't probably smell him. So all she's going by is this flash in the night. What is it about that flash? So we spent a decade or so um, doing what we call firefly opinion polls. So we would take female fireflies out in the field and we would play back to them using little LEDs hooked up to a computer, different kinds of flashes. And these flashes might not look really, really different to you or to me because they're differing by like 100 milliseconds. Um, so we would change the duration of the male flash uh, and then see what it was that females responded to. So female fireflies for this one particular group, the Photinus group of fireflies, are very, very convenient um, study subjects because when they like a male, they respond with a flash of their own. And so it's a visible signal. Hey, yeah, she likes him. So we did these firefly opinion polls um, showing, I would have to say, probably tens of thousands of fake flashes to um, 100 or so maybe more females and we figured out that we figured out what it is that females are looking for as you say it depends on the species in firefly species where the male gives a single advertisement flash females prefer males that give slightly longer flashes we're talking you know, 100 milliseconds here. So it's not something that you necessarily would see, but the females can tell. And they like males who are giving a more conspicuous signal in that it's a little bit longer. It's still within the range for their species, but it's longer than the other guy uh, who's flying next to him. All right. In other species, like- Well, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna stay away from a cheap joke here, but I do have a question. So, so brightness doesn't matter at all. It's just the length. They like brighter flashes, but females, in order to, so so they're more likely to respond when a male is closer, a mm, female mm. will respond when a male is closer to her, right. but the brightness, um, the intensity of the flash depends on the distance, and they don't have any independent way of judging the distance. Okay. They can't see the male's body. They don't have good spatial resolution. So even if they were flying at dusk, the males were flying at dusk, the females couldn't see, couldn't detect the, the size of the male body. So she'd have no way of judging um, independently of his dist of factoring distance into the mm. brightness of the flash. Okay. But they do like brighter flashes. Everybody likes brighter stuff, right? That's true. Can't deny that. Um, so then in the other, there's other, um, Photinus firefly species where males, instead of giving a single advertisement flash that they repeat every once in a while, some species males give uh, a series of, of pulses, that make up their flash pattern. And we also tested those. We, we got a bunch of females, we lined them up, we played back using this um, LED computer rig, um, different, a series of different um, flash patterns that differed in how quickly the pulses followed one, one another. Um, and we found that for those species, females like males that give quicker flashes. So, um, uh, their flash rate is faster. So again, they're flashing uh, more frequently, they're more conspicuous. And so females like more conspicuous males. And that's not a, it's, 
it took a lot of nights out getting eaten by mosquitoes to find that out. But it was really interesting because it matches what um, other scientists have found looking at, for example, birds of paradise or um, other male birds where bower birds, where females actually prefer males with the most elaborate decorations of their bower or male birds of paradise to have the brightest feathers or the brightest red coloration. So that's the firefly version of um, what females are looking for. They're looking for something that um, is putting the males out there. You know, they're bright, they're cool, they're the one I want. So it's very similar to human selection. You want the rebel, you want the bad boy, the guy, or the athlete, the guy who can do whatever it is, bigger, faster, longer, whatever. No comment. Okay. So now he, I'm going to throw this whole thing into a tizzy here because there's, and I just learned about this, but there's synchronous fireflies. So you got fireflies, all the males are kind of huddled together, and they're all doing the same flash at the same time for the same length. How in the world, it's like a wolf pack, you know, it, to put it in human terms. How does a single woman figure out of those, you know, 10 guys who the nerds are and who the jocks are and who the ones are the charmers? So, yeah, the there's um, for about 100 years, people have been fascinated by this phenomenon of synchronously flashing fireflies. It was first observed by Western science um, in some Southeast Asian fireflies where the males gather on particular mangrove trees along a, mang a river um, and they gather in these display trees. And as it gets dark, the males begin to flash and very quickly the males synchronize their flashes with everyone around them so that the whole tree lights up and then off and then up on, off, on, off, on, off. And they do that all night long. In those species, the females actually fly and the females are flying around to different display trees, checking out, you know, hey, is this a good, uh, is this a good tree to, you know, go in and see if I want to find a male here? And so that was the first really, um, the first time that uh, people started to look at the mechanism. How do these males synchronize their flashes? You know, how do they line everything up? How do their nervous systems work? And um, then it turns out that they're more recently, like in the last decade or so, it's uh, several different species of synchronous fireflies in the United States have been discovered. These are slightly different. These In these species, the males are flying around and they're flashing their flashes. And when they reach a certain density, uh, they actually begin to synchronize their flashes with males that are flying near them. And so uh, they all flash together like six bright flashes and then everybody's dark. Six bright flashes everybody's dark. And hmm. so we think, and the, the females, if they're going to respond, respond in the middle of that dark period. So we think there are two advantages to the um, synchrony in a kind of a noisy signaling environment. I don't know if you can put yourself in the um, position of a female firefly, but I've spent a lot of time on the ground looking up at night in a field of fireflies. And so 
I know that it's a visually very, very confusing environment. It's sometimes hard to pick out when all the males are flying around. It's hard to pick out a particular flash pattern. So we think that these males are synchronizing their flashes in order to reduce the visual clutter for females so that the female can detect that species-specific six bright flashes and then nothing and then six bright flashes. So they know that all the males out there are males of her species. And then she's gonna respond in the middle of the dark period. That makes it, this is the second advantage, it makes it possible for the males to detect a female against all of that visual noise. There's just mm. like flashing all around you. Suddenly it's dark, ooh, there's a flash right in the middle, three seconds after I stop flashing, there's a, that's a female. And then all the males just like tear down there. And um, at that point, they break synchrony, they're every man for himself. So they're a group until a woman comes into the mix and then she breaks up the group. Exactly, and then it's major competition. And only one male gets to mate with the female. So what does that micro competition look like? Because you know, like you just said, only one's going to get the to do the deed. Yeah, well, so the micro competition, you know, once there's a bunch of males around the female, she, um, she responds to particular males based on their, on their little variations in their flash pattern. For the synchronous fireflies, we don't actually know how females choose once the males, you know, once, once she's up close to the to the ones that are you know, flying into the display trees, the females are flying into the display trees. We don't know what exactly makes a, a female land on the leaf of this particular male, or what makes that um, synchronous fire, firefly um, female respond to this particular male. There's, there's a million unanswered questions. So anybody interested in like going into firefly ecology, it's a really, really fascinating field. <laughs> we need you, um, help the field. So, so now let's 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 fast forward or later on into the night. The females made her selection, and they engage in. Uh, this is a great word, by the way. Um, flagrante delicto. Did I, am I saying that correctly? Yeah. And that's a fancy word for mating. I, I'm guessing. Actually, my husband suggested that word. So yeah, it's good. <laughs> is that what it means? I don't want to misuse this in in uh, you know mixed company. That's it. Okay. So, so this, this goes on. And you actually, I think in your book, you have um, a picture of uh, basically preserved, fossilized in amber uh, two, um, two fireflies in, in, the coital, in the coital position. Uh, what, I think the continual rant I was going on earlier, you went and you collected a lot of these males and females who were happily mating and took them back and, and analyzed them to figure out what exactly was going on. Um, first of all, what a sick pervert you are. Second of all, what did you find out? So I wanted to mention that those fireflies in amber is really cool. So this is a pair of fireflies that just had the really bad luck, or maybe it was good luck, I don't know, to get um, 20 million years ago, they were mating, and then they got stuck in a flow of tree sap and they got preserved in Dominican amber in the mating position. And so that's like the most romantic thing. I gave a talk about fireflies <laughs> on Valentine's Day last year, and it was like, that was the cover slide. Oh, now, this wow. is so romantic. Long-lived romance, 20 million years. It's so cool. 
Okay, so um, that's all I want to say about Amber. Okay. <laughs> I did want to say that one of the things that was fascinating to me from the time I first started working on fireflies actually didn't have anything to do with the flashes. I was really, really interested in, you know, we knew that they had these species-specific signals that the males advertised, that the females responded, but nobody knew what happened after the lights go out. So what happens when the male gets close to the female? You know, what's the like close-up interaction like? And, you know, then they mate. How long do they mate for? You know, is it like a quick, you know, 20 second thing or what's going on? And um, because we were interested in the, um, the whole big picture thing of this sexual selection, uh, we knew that, you know, it's not just all about mating because females typically in the animal kingdom mate with more than one male. So one night the female, a female firefly might mate with one male, but the next night she might mate with another male. And so there's this whole post mating competition among males uh, for access, not to mates, but to the fertilizations, to fertilizing the female's eggs. Cause that's how he's going to get to uh, propel his genes into the next generation. So this whole business, um, the technical term for it is post-copulatory sexual selection. So I've spent a lot of my scientific career studying post-copulatory sexual selection. And it's really cool. And it's very, very, it's like, you know, um, man, it doesn't even matter if you are successful at mating and then you never get to fertilize any of the female's offspring Forget it. You could have just like given up and gone home at the beginning of the night. So we spent a lot of time, as you say, looking at what happens after the lights go out. That is, um, you know, how long did fireflies mate for? And um, we marked individual fireflies with little tiny drops of paint and um, different patterns so that we could recognize individuals. And we went back night after night after night after night after night, talk about the tedium of science. And we followed individual fireflies for their entire two week life. We knew exactly what they were doing every single night, who they were mating with, whether or not they were mating and who they were mating with. So um, we found out some really interesting stuff from that um, tedious study, which was that it's hard to mark fireflies. No, that was, it, it <laughs> is. Incredibly they're, hard, they're, I imagine. They're tiny, but it's fun. And um, it doesn't do any harm to them. And so we had one firefly. Um, we called it Bobo because it was blue, orange, blue, orange. And... Um, Let's see, Bobo was a female firefly and she mated uh, pretty much every other night. So six times she mated with different males. And when she mated, she mated all night long. <laughs> so these fireflies were getting together, you know, doing their flash thing, let's say at dusk, a little bit after sunset, and then they'd find each other, and let's say an hour after sunset, and then they'd stay together for nine hours until the sun rose again, and then they'd go their separate ways. And we, once we realized that females were mating with different males on different nights, 
we wondered whether there was a way that um, males might get a leg up on other males in terms of the fertilizations. And there's a couple of ways that males could do that. In other insects, males have been, in other animals, males actually are, um, when they mate with a female who's already mated, the first thing they do is they actually scoop out the sperm that's inside the female hmm. that previous males have left there. So that's a um, one tactic that um, some insect males do, like damselflies. Well, that has to be um, a very intricate they, process. I mean, you're you're intricate. you're saying it like it's like oh yeah, it's just sitting on it. But I mean, that feels <laughs> like very specific. It's very specific. So um, it's actually you know the the the. Hmm. the shape of the male genitalia is exquisitely matched to the internal anatomy of the female. That's the only way, and that's the only way that they can get access to these um, internal places in the female where female insects store sperm. And so um, male, insect male genitalia has been described as a Swiss army knife. It's like got all these little, you know, um, accessories that you can pull out. There's a brush over here and a scoop over here and a kind of slicer thing over here. And none of this stuff happens during courtship. It all happens during post-copulatory sexual selection. And it is the thing that determines the reproductive fitness of the male, whether they have the bells and whistles on their genitalia. So anyways, we were looking for this. We were looking for this in fireflies. We were just, oh, we were, um, you can, because they mate for such a long time, you can actually um, get a mating pair of fireflies and you need to sacrifice the fireflies for this, but you can put them in the freezer and then you can very, very, very carefully, after they're thawed, um, you can dissect them apart and you can actually look inside a mating pair of fireflies. And when we did that, we discovered a really surprising twist to firefly sex. We found that males were spending like the first couple hours of their mating, prolonged mating period, they were actually giving the female not just sperm, but also this beautiful, elegant, coiled package with sperm and protein that is called technical term coming up nuptial gift really that's what scientists call it hmm. so it's a it's a um something that males give females during mating that could be advantageous to the female it could be like a gift you want to return like ah don't give me this i am not interested <laughs> right. so it doesn't need to be advantageous but um in this case we found that um male fireflies are giving females something that allows them to produce more eggs and so it's a valuable nuptial gift in fireflies. It's something that females want, and it's something that females would want to mate with multiple males. So every time they mate with a male, they get a nuptial gift. That's cool. And then they can produce more eggs. So it's advantageous to the female. And males with the bigger nuptial gifts also get to fertilize more eggs. Hmm. So it's advantageous to the male. It's, it's a benefit for both sexes. And this is so. This is typically found in insects that don't eat during their adult stages, where they're not gaining nutrients. Correct. 
actually, it's yeah, that that's it's really really important in those insects. It's like a um, it's a really really big economic question for those insects because the males they're not taking in any nutrients, but they're giving these nuptial gifts. You know, night after night after night, they're running out of steam, and the females they're not eating, and so the only thing they have coming in as they're laying all these eggs are these nuptial gifts. So they're very, very valuable in insects that don't eat as adults. But nuptial gifts are actually found all across the animal kingdom. That's pretty, oh, across the animal kingdom, not just insects? Yeah, not just insects. Wow. Uh, There is a, um, let's see, there's a really, really good, who was that? Brandon Klein, uh, Wired, had a really, really great uh, Valentine's Day uh, piece on nuptial, in animal nuptial gifts uh, a couple years ago. Check it out. It's cool. Uh, well, so let, this is a great place to end this, but um, I want to tease one little – you're going to stick around for the vampire firefly, we'll call it, uh, which is a whole other world of competition. Um, so stick around for that. Uh, but let's let's talk about your book because we've only really scratched the surface of the Firefly world. And your book, while it is a textbook, it reads like a novel. This thing's incredible. It's called Silent Sparks. Uh, where can people find it and find you? I just wanted to say that I hope it's not a textbook. I actually wrote Silent Sparks for everybody who loves fireflies. It's really, really um, intended for anyone who has any interest or curiosity or wonder it's an exploration of firefly wonder and science and it's full of stories it's full of travel stories it's full of stories about the admittedly kind of quirky scientists uh who study fireflies and how they actually made their discoveries so please i feel like it's a um i feel a little insulted it's it's not a textbook oh, well, you can use it as one but it doesn't <laughs> read like a textbook i, I did say thank that. you I really appreciate it. You know, I um, one of the things that drove me crazy, you know, after a couple of decades of studying fireflies is I knew all this cool stuff about fireflies. And I, you know, I told other scientists about them. We'd written a whole bunch of scientific papers. You know, we did a really great job talking to other scientists. But when I sat next to people on airplanes or I talked to my friends and neighbors, I realized that no one knew any. Everyone loved fireflies and they were curious to know more. But nobody knew about any of these cool scientific discoveries. And so the reason that I wrote the book was to kind of translate the science into something that would be accessible to everybody who was curious about fireflies. Well, you did a great job. Um, and I'll have links to your website where they can, where people can find the book. Uh, it's incredible. Again, we've just scratched the surface. These are very interesting, incredible creatures. So uh, Sarah, Dr. Lewis, thank you so much for being on the program today. Thanks for having me. No problem. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every episode, or you can follow the show on social media. There are, you'll find links to the show's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. Now, you can also subscribe to the newsletter and find all kinds of clever little bits that I add in there, or you can, um, you can never, ever miss an episode, and I, I mean never, ever, 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 never, never. 
by subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play. If you like this show, you might like some of my other projects, which you can find at danieljglenn.com. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.